You're listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Vicky Marinka, a podcast bringing you interesting conversations about careers and communications. Today, I'm talking with Mark Hutchin. Mark is a director in the crisis and reputation practice at Deloitte. He helps leaders to spot and prepare for risks. Today, we're discussing the climate crisis and the risk that poses to businesses. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you, Vicky. I always start by asking a couple of questions which give you the chance to introduce yourself. So let's dive in. Give me your elevator pitch and how you describe what you do to strangers. Yes, yeah, sure. Thanks. And, and lovely to be here. Well, at its simplest form, it's um, helping clients tell, tell relevant stories and um, spotting issues that potentially hurt their reputations, challenging them and also challenging their behavior so they're in step with society. Being a critical friend. Give me a potted history of your career and some information about your current role. Yeah, well, I've been in the communications industry nearly two decades. Started off in a small provincial PR firm in Belfast, uh, Drury Communications. I started as a graduate. I did nearly 10 years with that, with that Irish consultancy, then came to London, joined a firm called Reputation Inc., who at the time were sort of pioneers in this space, really trying to think about a boardroom level conversation around reputation and its value to companies. So that was sort of white space for our industry at the time. Uh, I went in-house after that and did three different sectors. So um, comms director for Fitness First, uh, a gym business, then um, Samsung Electronics and Technology, and then a year with Williams Formula One. And and after that, joined Deloitte as a, as a reputation lead for our European business. A very varied career. So today we're talking about the climate crisis, which is such a big issue. It's hard to know really where to start. But just this week in the news, we've seen two big um, issues come up. So uh, the US has rejoined the Paris Climate Accord and Sir David Attenborough addressed the United Nations Security Council session on climate as well. And then later in the year, we've got the UN's COP26 climate summit, which comes to Glasgow. So everyone recognises that climate change has an ever-increasing impact on society and the economy. Do you see that recognition and sense of urgency reflected in the business world? And do you think business is ready for the challenge? Well, big question. So from my vantage point, I do detect the urgency. It does feel like a coming-of-age moment for climate issues and and resolution. No question. And part of that actually has been COVID-19. I was reading there the statistics that in 2020 emissions, global emissions were down 7%, which is the first time in 50 years there's been a reduction. Now, we know the reason for that has been clearly the lockdowns around the the world, but it shows on one level what can be done with drastic action. And, you know, anyone who's read a newspaper or, you know, been awake the past past year or two, um, you will have got a sense that something has to change. Uh, And when we get a kind of quorum or a, you know, a majority of opinion saying yes to that change, uh, you get a tipping point. So it does feel like it's a change moment. Um, your second question is the more interesting one is, are clients and organizations ready and do they get, you know, what's got to change and how? And more often than not, the answer to that is no, because it's just so complex. And a lot of business models for clients are based on traditional emission-led high carbon activities. So that's the tension we all face. You know, what, mm. what are you going to give up to um, to help tackle climate change? Are there any statistics about how many businesses are preparing for climate change? I mean, you'd have to be mad not to, to, to have it in your corporate strategy. The, the challenge has been, I think one way to look at it is probably the most august 
forecaster of risk is the World Economic Forum. So every January, they'll publish their, um, their annual profile of, of one-year and 10-year risks. And that was really interesting in the past two years. The top five risks um, from risk officers over the, over the short and long term are now all climate-based. Now, that's excluding social unrest, uh, natural disasters. So you, it shows how far it's sort of in the, in the frame, in the lens of and what's worrying risk officers. And their job is to worry about the big stuff. So I think that captures that it's, um, it's front and centre. The question then becomes, what level of risk can we tolerate as a company, you know, to our operations, to our customers, to our finances? And then if it gets too much, what are we going to do about it? The other thing that's been very, I think, significant in all of this is that it's not really just down to the company because um, societies put pressure on the companies and probably at the front of all that is investors. Uh, And there's been a real groundswell in the past 12 months, which, you know, probably most famous is Larry Fink, but the investment community has decided to go all in and put its money where, where the change is needed. So they're not going to be investing pension funds and, and capital in carbon heavy companies and so when that becomes the reality then it becomes a different choice I think for for companies. And how does your team help clients to plan ahead for climate change? Well a, cu- a couple of things and one piece of work that Deloitte published early last year which is uh, the climate scenarios. So one of the incontrovertible truths and you know this goes back to Al Gore's sort of seminal piece of work the inconvenient truth he did 15 years ago was that the world is getting warmer and has been for about 50 years. It's been accelerating in terms of um, global warming because of the amount of carbon we emit. And so what we did, we uh, worked with the Met Office and some of our um, forecasting teams to go, right, well, what are the potential futures ahead of us? And we worked on a basis of different levels of warming. So to to keep it really simple, the world's warming at about 1.5 degrees on our current trajectory. So we looked at scenarios that take it to four degrees, but there are some sort of ways and means whereby you can sort of build out some pictures of, of the future based on data, what we know from the past and using what we use as something called scenario outlooks, which paint a version of the future that may have an anchor in the truth. Um, how we did that piece of work was actually quite simple. We, we looked at economic growth over the last hundred years and economic growth tends to go hand in hand with carbon growth. And then we also looked at social change. And that's the hardest one to predict because in, in the past 30 years, there hasn't been an awful lot of ap- appetite for changing consumption habits. But that's the big prize, I think, in the future, that people will genuinely change behavior. So we put all those into the model and come up with these four, um, four scenarios. Some are quite benign and protect the environment, and some are, are potentially disastrous for the climate, for the economy, and, you know, and the planet. The one we all want to be part of is scenario D actually, I'll, I'll start at the end, which is the what we call the steady path to sustainability. So that's by 2050, we, um, we stay on the, the level of global warming we have to date. So it's a 1.5 degree world we live in. Now to get there, it's going to take, everybody buys into the um, sustainable changes that need to happen. What that sort of means in reality is that the level of air travel or, or energy sources, um, the types of businesses we run, deforestation, use of materials, pretty radical changes to all of those. But it's not, it's not impossible. And you've seen some of the pretty landmark uh, commitments that governments have made of, of late. You know, I think the average commitment to be net zero is around about 2050 for governments. Uh, and in terms of the private sector, I think the average uh, 
deadline is around 2030, 2035 for FTSE companies. So you can see that that companies are and, and um, governments around the world are, are preparing to kind of step up to the challenge. So that's the one we all want to be part of. The other side then is the worst case scenario is what we call the, uh, the fossil fuel world. So nothing changes. You know, we take two or three trips abroad every year. Our factories run on the same power sources. We don't address the major issues with deforestation. The impact on, on use of resources on the biodiversity mix is the same. So no change and status quo means four degrees warm. And that's where you get some serious kind of uh, disaster movie scenarios in terms of uh, rising of sea levels, loss of you know, animal populations. We won't have a Maldives. We won't have much of the polar ice caps. You know, it sounds a little bit catastrophizing, but it's a genuine, you know, it's a genuine prediction and in, in grounded in, in data and assumptions. So, and it's which future do consumers want and which future do businesses want? And what do you do with that information with your clients? Do you go through their business strategy? Do you help them decide what's next in the next five years, hundred years? You know, what's the time scale? Yes, I mean the the ideas for them is to sort of solve solve problems. So the first question is, what does it mean to us? Will we have customers for our product line? So we've got working with a client at the moment in the pharmaceutical business. Uh, they've made a a ten year bold commitment to be net zero across their um, all of their operations. So with them, it's it's challenging them. Well, do they have the mindset to really change how the business runs? So tangible examples being how do they power all of their factories and R&D facilities and manufacturing sites moving from gas to renewables? Can they have electric cars and all of their medical seals for fleets? What will they do around certain ingredients that are very carbon heavy that go into some of the medicines? So we can um, challenge them to think through the operations of it, the culture of it. So how do they get the leadership's commitment? And then the kind of technical stuff is also important. So can you verifiably prove you're delivering this so the NGOs and the investors can have confidence that you're you know, delivering the promise? Those are the areas that we can make it tangible for clients and send them on a, on a roadmap where at the start they would, it would have felt incredibly frightening and probably overwhelming. You know, how do I get to net zero? But when you break it down like that, it, um, it becomes more manageable and, and sellable to the to C-suite. Who are the winners and losers in each of these best and worst case scenarios? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a great question. Well, we'll probably all lose in scenario A, a fossil fuel f- future. And that's because the cost of carbon will be so high, frankly, that just basic things that we took for granted, like certain goods, certain foods we take flights etc i think will become a luxury secondly it'll be just tragic you know some of the scenes you may see in parts of the world so we'll be the loser frankly because you know with a fight against mother nature there's only one person that's gonna gonna win on that i think industry wise it's it's very interesting i mean you hear a lot of rhetoric around the green new deal and green tech jobs but anyone connected to electric hybrid carbon capture, hydrogen capture, the new sources of power. You know, the big shells and BPs have have realized that the old fossil fuel world is, you know, that was scenario D, isn't going to happen. You know, they will be left with, with stranded assets if they keep all of their oil fields. So they're on the journey. And I think, you know, potentially how fast they move, they could be the winners. But the scientists, I think, you know, we need to invent some radical new sources of power uh, innovators like, you know, we've seen obviously with Elon Musk and Tesla, 
So anyone who's involved with electric batteries, I think, will be a winner. And then really any brands that can show that they are truly sustainable, you'll probably win with customers, win with investors. I think this the sector that has most to win or lose is the consumer sector uh, because it's consumption-based. So if you can find a way to make your products that are sustainable and that they have positive impact, then you can have growth as well as less impacts. And I think the companies that do that best are the likes of Reckitt, Ben Kaiser and Unilever. You know, so they have to crack this line between people buying more stuff, but it's still good for the environment, which was, which is, you know, which is quite a conundrum. But Unilever have managed to do it. And I think, the, yeah, those consumer companies are the ones that have the sort of, I think, the blueprint to crack this. Do you think that consumer sectors like fast fashion can possibly survive? We all have a bargain and, and we're addicted to, you know, uh, one, one click shopping and the next fashion. So I think you can't be too worthy about these things. Uh, Primark and, and Boohoo are here to stay. It's not, it's not proven that consumers will give up those luxuries for, um, for the environment. That's still the sort of the white space we've got to look into. But I, I mean, I don't know you as a consumer, Vicky, how you, where you would come in this debate, cheap jeans or saving the planet. I tend not to go for the cheap jeans, but okay. I, I can't say hand on heart, it's all about planet saving. It's it's more about wanting quality over quantity and you know preferring to, to spend a bit more money on something that will last. So hopefully that also ultimately saves the planet. Will Formula Smart. One survive this change? Yeah, good question. Yes, it will, because it's a loved, it's a loved sport. And they haven't been spectating on the sidelines. I mean, probably don't appreciate, but Formula One engines have had have been hybrid engines for the past sort of six, seven years. So a combination of combustion and electric. Um, now, that's annoyed the purists because the noise of the races is, is uh, not as deafening as it used to be. So you lose some of that visceral experience. But yeah, we ran a campaign when I was at Williams called Racing to Change the World. So how can we use racing technology to help with um, energy battery technology. We used to talk about Formula One cars being kind of R&D centers on wheels because you're always chasing next year's, um, you know, few seconds gain in the in your track times. They're always putting in experimental technology to make the car lighter. So one of the ways they, they could do that was to lightweight a lot of the, the structure, and but also make it incredibly durable. And so once they cracked that, then we could redeploy that onto say cars you drive on the, on, on the high street or um, aeroplanes. And when you take weight out of vehicles, it reduces the energy and the carbon. So yeah, they probably get a lot of stick for flying billionaires flying around the world. And to a degree that's fair, but I think like many sports, they've woken up uh, to the world. What um, companies are role models for responding to climate risk? The good news is, is that there's quite a lot or quite a few of them out there that you can you can credit with being good, pra- good practice. You know, the, probably the surprising place to start will be the um, oil and gas world because they're, they're responsible for so much of the carbon emissions because of the fuel sources they provide. But then they've probably the biggest impact to make if they can, if they can switch and transition from, from fossil fuels to clean and renewables. You know, and as a communicator, I have to give credit to the, um, the new leader at BP, uh, Bernard Looney. Uh, he's been a bit of a breath of, breath of fresh air in there. And, um, you know, they have a long way to go and there's a lot of cynicism, but they've really gone to it with energy, with their Reimagine Energy campaign. He himself is, you know, very transparent. He's on Instagram a lot. You know, he's, you know, rather than running from the debate about fossil fuel and oil, 
you know, he wants to be in there as part of the, the long-term solution. And that's easier said than done. So I, I have to respect them. You know, clearly Unilever is the sort of the blue chip brand that, that probably got to this first more than anybody 15 years ago. Um, and, you know, at times when you, when you listen to what they say and do, they almost sound like a, like a UN institution or, or an NGO. Uh, but that shouldn't mask the fact that they've, you know, they've managed to crack this idea of, of being able to economically grow consistently as well as reduce their impact on, uh, on resources. And so it shows they've rebuilt the business model around sort of long-term climate strategies and still make money. I'd hold them up. There's other interesting companies as well. You think of, um, I don't know, the Norwegian energy company, Nordea, uh, which completely uh, transformed its, its business strategy, sold out of all of its gas and oil assets and, and is 100% renewables. And that was done in less than five years. So, you know, it is possible if the investors back the management team and you have the kind of uh, the conviction to do it. So what's the role of the communications profession in preparing and planning for, for climate change? Critical one, you know, an absolutely critical one for, for probably three reasons. Firstly, they tend to enjoy quite a heightened or important role within companies, particularly corporate affairs directors. You know, they, they may possibly sit on the highest board table in the company. So they got access and influence to the, to the real decision makers. And that matters. You know, most companies up to the last decade have been driven by profit, you know, shareholder return, nothing else. And whilst that probably still is the primary goal, ultimately, there are competing, if not equal, other concerns. And, and the biggest one is ESG, so impact on society. So corporate affairs directors get to have an input into the, the big decisions, number one. I think number two, they're very good at sort of sensing the outside world and where it's going, public opinion, media opinion. That's our job, you know, at a, ba- at a basic level. And being able to spot that and decode you know, where public attitudes are, customer attitudes are, where the problems will lie and where the opportunities are is a skill set that I think can help a company navigate. And then the final area really is to, um, yeah, bring your employees with you. So I talked earlier about the, the pharmaceutical business that has to, you know, change how it makes its products, how it manufactures, how its sales force gets around literally. You know, so that's a lot of change. And every time you bring in change, or, you know, you need to lay the ground for that bring hearts and minds with you or make the case, invite people into the change so they can own it. So those are good things that internal communicators do really well. And then maybe one other point I make is um, uh, it's really new space. And I think comms people thrive in new space or uncertainty, maybe less so than engine, you know, engineering roles. I don't know if you agree, but it's always been my uh, sense that it's the, they're the kind of thinkers that are quite agile. I do agree, yeah. And how how can comms people prepare for the changes ahead? What skills and knowledge do they need? How do you train people in your team, for example? There's a number of courses out there. Uh, not, not so much communications and climate, but just climate science courses that you can do part-time. Uh, uh, UCL has a great one, Oxford University. So it would give you a grounding in the science behind climate change, broader sustainability and the reporting side. Because I firmly believe that if you're in financial communications, so reporting your performance to investors, brand communications or corporate communications, there's no question that dealing with climate issues, climate impacts is, if it's not already, is kind of central to all that. You can't wing that. I do think you have to know your stuff, particularly the science. So get grounded in that. A lot of it is risk-based. There's no question. Like, so we talked about what are the scenarios facing my business? Where is the, um, the risk going to materialize? Will this affect our ability to 
connect with customers, the rating we receive from investors. Are we in the right news stories? You know, are we tackling recycling, coffee cups? Are we taking on the big challenges with regards uh, biodiversity or extreme weather? So, so, no, so number one, get, get into the science. Number two, build it into your narratives and into your central planning and don't treat it like a fashionable campaign, which I think has been sort of the case in the past 10 years where let's have a campaign about orangutans at Christmas. Now, that particular example actually was very good. That was run by Iceland and, and rightfully got a fair few um, plaudits for that. But don't treat, don't treat it as a sort of temporary you know, story and then leave, leave it. Uh, I think if it's going to be credible, it has to, has to be a regular part of what you talk about as a brand or business. So it's actually quite an exciting space to be. If I was coming up 20 years ago and I had a communications career ahead of me bringing in sustainability right at the start, if you're starting off today, is a real smart move. What one thing can corporate communications teams do now to move this agenda forward in their company? If you were going to give them a top tip. Yeah, great question. So challenge themselves, first of all, you know, even using the scenarios, what, what will our industry be? You know, if we're in the hotel business, how will we run hotels in scenarios A or B? And what in what countries will people travel? What will be their motivations? You know, really try and even if that's 20, 20 30 years away, try, try and try and get a sense of the future. Because a lot of what the comms people are doing is to try and to not so much predict it, but I think connect their companies or their narratives to that. So really challenge yourselves. Probably, yeah, strategically plan for where your brand's role in that will be. What is the change you're trying to stand for? And have a call to action around that, even if it's small. Thirdly, yeah, really take the temperature of your employees on these things. You know, so in your staff surveys, to what degree are they kind of activist about climate, recycling, uh, inequalities, use of water. And if they're really passionate about it, you know, build your campaigns around that. And then, you know, hold the leaders feet to the feet to the flame. You talked about in your introductory remarks, COP26, so the Conference of the Parties in, in, in Glasgow. You can imagine a lot of companies, particularly big national brands, will want to put, to put on at least a reasonable show and tell at that big platform. But I think the comms teams can do two things. Number one, make sure it's authentic. And then number two, think of where it could go wrong. Because there is still a, a danger of chief executives sort of chasing the headlines with this stuff. Mm-hmm. And where can listeners find the Deloitte and Met Office report? Is that in the public domain? Yeah, so that will be, if you go to just Deloitte.co.uk and search for a climate change report with the Met Office that's all available. And there's some quite handy tools we've included in the in the deck. So some personas of consumers of the future and some of the specific drivers behind those different scenarios and how they may affect the consumer industry and other industries. So that's out there. We we also have a regular um, program of of webinars on on these uh, on these events. So the most successful one we did last year was with Mark Carney. He's now a global ambassador on climate change. So look out for those events as well. Will do. And I've read the report and it's it's really useful. So I do um, wholeheartedly recommend that people read that. So at the end of these discussions, I always ask my guests the same set of questions. So I'm going to launch into those. So what one campaign will you be remembered for? I mean, I'm, I'm humble enough to be honest to say probably none. <laughs> uh, uh, I think the one that I'll recall most fondly will be one a campaign I ran maybe 10, 15 years ago when I was in consultancy for Travelodge. Not everybody's, you know, aspirational brand, but but still a great company. And we ran a campaign called No to Bed Tax. 
and it sounds so basic, but this was going back sort of 12, 15 years ago. And there weren't a lot of corporate campaigns back then. It wasn't a thing. That idea of corporate campaigning sort of really came after that with uh, Blue Rubicon, especially the agency, you know, pioneering that. But yeah, I was, I'm proud of that because we made a splash in the, in the tourism industry uh, to fight against sort of a, uh, this idea of a, of a, of a tax on, on tourists just as the tourism industry was getting was growing past the, the 2000 recession. So I think if anything, it would be that. Who from history would you most like to have had the opportunity to work with or do the communications for? For this one, I've chosen Nikola, Nikolai Tesla. And a fascinating story. And I picked up, there was a, there was a movie with Bernard, Benedict Cumberbatch recently on his uh, Tesla's uh, rivalry with uh, Thomas Edison to invent the current. Now, he's obviously eponymously um, known today through the, uh, the car brand, the electric car brand, but he was a bit of a tortured genius um, in his day. Uh, and never quite got the recognition he deserved, despite being a, a, a real pioneer. And he has a great quote, actually, that I was that I use a few times. But he talks about the um, present is theirs, but the future for which I work is mine. Uh, and I guess that sort of you know summarizes him as a as a as a bit of an innovator in in his day. So him, if it wasn't going to be him, it would be Arsene Wenger, the Arsenal manager, being a lifelong gooner. Okay, and do you think he needed? Better communications support. Arsene Wenger? No, yeah. I don't. Th- I don't think so. I don't think so at all. But he's a he was a class act. I think modern sports teams have a massive communications agenda. You know, a club like Arsenal do very well. Sadly, since his departure, they're, they're not performing as, as well. But no, more so from the fact I think he was just a, a mold breaking manager and a visionary and being around those kind of leaders. Mm. And it's a piece of a piece of advice I would give anyone in the in the industry is that. Mostly the choices we make in our career are accidental, let's be honest. But if you get a chance to work with characters and real leaders in the early stages, it can be very formative. And he mm. was definitely, you know, an iconoclast in, in management. And what advice would you give to someone just starting their comms career or looking for their first comms opportunity? Yeah, I, had, I, I thought about this. I, I'd, be, I'd be serious about it. I mean, it's not PR used to be a bit of a joke profession. Uh, you finished one career and if you wanted uh, an easy life, you'd do... PR to take some journalist golfing. I don't think that applies anymore. Uh, I think you do need to be serious about it. So I would test yourself to at least as- establish if you're serious about it. You know, the test for me would be: Can you write well an articulated position or an issue? Do you care about the news? Do you read the news? And can you sort of connect with people? You know, can you build relationships? I mean, any of those I think are kind of qualifying characteristics of someone who might make it and comes. Uh, so yeah, be serious about it. And then if you're going to go for it, be tenacious. I've always noted that it's um, it's an industry for not opportunists, but those that have got self-confidence and they're not afraid to go for it, start their own business, stand up for their own idea. It's great in that way. And what predictions do you have of the future of communications? Wow, big question. So outside of the climate issue, which I think will become central to as I said, the stories we tell, the people you hire in your function, the the advice you give in the company. I, mean, I think it's I think it's an optimist an optimistic future. I've I've done a lot of events in the past twelve months that have been COVID based with boardrooms, and the single uh, recurrent message that chairmen are sending back is that comms has been invaluable through the pandemic, which is a you know great well a, a positive legacy of it. The opportunity is there. I think maybe probably more more structured around the risk side of things. 
comms teams, PR teams and agencies are really good at the proactive, offensive, big idea. And that will always be the heart blood of it. But I, I'm not sure we've been always been as rigorous on the risk side of things and looking at data and looking at what's around the corner and where the company could misstep. So I think that's probably going to be uh, an area area of focus as well as uh, internal communications probably equals external comms now. Well, it, it never was always that case, but I think it definitely rivals that in terms of its importance. So yeah, watch the rise of that further maybe. We're definitely seeing that in recruitment terms that internal comms is is on a parallel with external comms for sure. So what's the most ridiculous or embarrassing thing you've done in the name of communications? Yeah, quite a few. I'll give you a few examples. So my old boss made me dress as a as Dr. Brown from Back to the Future, the mad scientist for a pitch once uh, that we that we didn't win. When I I did a small PR job for Coca-Cola and had to dress dress up as a polar bear <laughs> with, with roller skates. At that, to promote an event. But I think, the, I think the worst one was I was working as a young PR executive years ago in Belfast and we had a client who had, did a, they did an event um, away from Belfast. So we stayed overnight and um, during, during the night I got up to use the bathroom but got back in the wrong room. Oh no. And got into bed with the client who was a Oh brother. my God. Bernard. I always remember Bernard. <laughs> he, but he was, he was fine about it. So that is a new one. I mean, I've heard a lot of stories about people having to dress up in PR, but getting right. in client's bed. that Taking client relations to the next level. Brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing all of your knowledge about um, the climate crisis. It's been really interesting. And I'm sure that our listeners will, will take a lot from that. Thank you. Thanks, Vicky. You've been listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast. If you'd like to get a hold of me, I'm on the usual social media channels with the handle The DSTM Podcast. Or you can email me at the dstmpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and colleagues. And don't forget to subscribe for more interesting conversations about careers and communications. Until next time, thanks for listening. 